Welcome. You're listening to a Mr. Thrive Media production. What is there to say about Kevin Nahai other than he is more willing than most people I know to stand out and be vulnerable in order to provide healing and help to those in need? Kevin Nahai is a life coach and a former drummer, and he's overcome addiction as well as physical challenges in his life, and today uses his setbacks to turn into strengths for not only himself, but others as well. He's absolutely an inspirational fellow, and I really can't wait for you guys to hear this episode on his take on the arts and creatives world. Also, we have our Dapper networking party on September 28th. The link will be in the show notes of this episode. I'm so excited for you guys to experience it. The link is in the show notes of this episode. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy. You have stumbled upon the Mr. Thrive Podcast, where together we discover former artist, personal coach, and public speaker, Kevin Nahai. Kevin, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, brother. I'm honored to be here. I'm so glad to have you as a new friend and uh, so excited to dive deep, have this conversation. Let's, let's drop some nuggets over here. One of the things I've always admired about you is the positive energy that you bring to the table. And so I really greatly appreciate that, that, that bounce back of positive energy. So thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Um, Thank you, man. As I mentioned to you before this interview, we always do our warm-up trivia are you ready uh, hit me i didn't i wasn't you actually didn't tell me about Excellent. this so i'm didn't i know so i'm it? going in cold but let's do it <laughs> uh, <laughs> oops <laughs> well one thing that's not a secret that i've told everyone on the show is that you know i i i kind of do like a like a pre-interview session before i bring on anyone i don't i don't go cold turkey this way i can really get to to learn about the, you know, the guest and build a rapport. So what I learned is that you're a drummer. I looked up drummer trivia. Oh, yes, Are you ready? of course. My favorite. Yes. Excellent. Question one. The Rolling Stones claim that this album changed rock drumming forever. Was it A, Led Zeppelin by Led Zeppelin, B, Ride the Lightning by Metallica, C, Who's Next by The Who, or D, Highway to Hell by ACDC. Oh, it must have been Who's Next by The Who, given the time zone, the time frame. Um, either that or, well, it depends when Rolling Stones said that. Um, so I would choose either Led Zeppelin by Led Zeppelin because John Bonham is the greatest rock drummer of all time. Or I would choose The Who um, because Keith Moon was also one of the greatest rock drummers of all time. Which one are you, which one are you going with? I'm going to go with Led Zeppelin. Oh man, good job. Nailed it. All right. Bam. I watching you deduce that was was kind of rewarding to see. You you figured that out pretty well. Good job, man. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I'm such a rock music nerd. I, love I used it. to sit in my sit in my room when I was in like 10th grade just studying trivia about how different drummers died and you know, how they who their teachers were and when they started playing and you know, the types of kits that they played, man, I, I mean, drumming was my first love before I was into anything personal development related. I started playing when I was five and, you know, I still play to this day, but I played pretty obsessively from the ages of five till about 25. Incredible, incredible. And I can't wait to unpack more of that story. Cause there's, there's a lot there. The, the sick part of me, the really uh, like, like 
like wrong psychopathic part of me wants to know about these drummer <laughs> deaths that you just described. But before we get there, okay. Well, that yeah, that's why I was interested in it too because I'm also a, a crazy psycho, just you know, in a, just like you, but in a different way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, so question two: John Lennon often spoke very poorly about this drummer in interviews. Was it A. Neil Peart, B. Steve God, C. Ringo Starr, or D. Chad Smith? Okay, Chad Smith is a bass player. Ringo Starr is the worst drummer of all four of those of those four options. I don't really know how he could speak poorly about Steve Gadd or Neil Peart, two of my personal idols. So I'm going to, but I mean, Ringo Starr was his bandmate, so that would be kind of messed up. I'm going to go for C, Ringo Starr. Yeah, it was Ringo Starr. Imagine your own band member talking shit about you in every single interview. That's always what he would do. Isn't that messed up? Well, dude, that, you know the band The Police? Yeah. Uh, with Sting? Yeah. Yeah. So Sting and, and the drummer, Stuart Copeland, famously had a rival for the entire, a rivalry, sorry, for the entire time that they were a band, and they absolutely hated each other. And they would talk so much smack on each other in interviews and in the studio. And, you know, there were two megalomaniac, narcissistic divas who were just throughout the, I mean, but, and everybody asked them, well, why'd you stay together for so long? And their answer was, we were so good at what we did that there was no way for us not to stay together. I love that. I love that. It's messed up, but it's just, just, and it gives a little sample to how messed up music can be as we're going to talk about in this interview. So, uh, I, I, yeah, right, right on the theme there for sure. Question three, which drummer was famous for saying, I taught myself how to play guitar. I taught myself how to play the drums and I kind of fake doing both of them. But drumming comes more natural to me, and it just feels better. Was that A, Buddy Rich, B, Dave Grohl, C, Bernie Perdue, or D, Terry Bozio? It was B, Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters. Damn, that was really good. So you knew that you knew that quote ahead of time? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah, that one was easy for me because I'm a big fan of the Foo Fighters. Oh my god, dude. I, I thought maybe this information would be like a little too obscure because I don't know this about even my legends, like the people that I look up to like that. So like you, you killed it, man. Well done. You are truly an expert at that, at the, the world of, uh, tr of uh, drumming. So yeah, you, you were totally right. Being a drummer nerd. That's awesome. I hope that uh, I'm as good at my actual job as I am at obscure rock drummer trivia. Yeah, no, you killed it. You killed it. I want to, I want to talk about your world of uh, drumming. You said you started at the age of five, but what was what was the peak point in your career as a drummer well, from the professional stance? Because I know I know you no longer do drumming anymore. What was like the the what was the top professional place that you were at as a drummer? It's hard to say. It kind of depends on whether you consider the peak playing with bands and artists at stadiums and stuff, or whether you consider the peak making money as a studio drummer or whether you consider the peak, um, you know, uh, who you played for, like the most famous person that you played for or whatever. Um, for me personally, the peak was, um, the year between college and grad school when I was finally a paid drummer and could support myself from being a musician. 
Um, and that was through a combination of studio work and live shows and playing as a drummer for hire for various bands. Um, I played with some cool bands and I played some amazing shows and, you know, I had different moments of 15 seconds of fame. I was never famous because drummers are never famous. Um, you know, plus I didn't stick with it long enough to be famous or anything like that. I mean, I, I stopped playing professionally when I was 25. Um, but yeah, I think that the peak for me was I always had this dream of being a drummer and like not having to be a bartender slash drummer, not having to be, you know, so when I was actually doing that in college or right after college before graduate school, that was a big moment for me. Wow. You experience this quantum leap, right? You, you kind of launched into this drumming career, but what was the, what was the big wake up call that turned you from an artist into what is now a former artist? Well, they say that if you're a musician or an actor or an actress and you care about anything else or you're good at anything else, then you should do that because the life, if, if there's anything, if there is any skill you have other than your craft as an artist or an actor or whatever, then people say you should do the other skill you have. and. The reason that people say that, it's kind of a cynical thing to say, but the reason people say that is that the life of an artist um, is so incredibly difficult and requires so many sacrifices. And if you'll be happy doing something else, or if you're, as it was in my case, better at other things, then that may, you know, it comes down to the type of lifestyle that you want to have. The realization for me was that I did not want to have the lifestyle that a professional drummer has. Um, and I knew that because I was constantly surrounded by professional drummers and I saw the long-term trajectory of their careers. And some of them were extremely successful, but you know they were playing shows five nights a week, leaving their families to go on the road for however many weeks out of the year, You know, sitting in a studio, listening to producers tell them what to do and how to play for eight hours a day. You know, um, now I incidentally chose a profession that's just as hard, which is, you know, trying to break into the speaking world and the coaching world. And, you know, as it is with musicians and actors, for every one person who's talented, there's 10 people who are more talented than you. And there's 300 people who are complete idiots who are more successful than you because they have connections or they have the first mover advantage or whatever. So, every industry is going to be oversaturated and incredibly competitive. So it's not like I went from a competitive industry into one where like I was just a shoe in, you know, you're going to have to hustle and you're really going to have to work hard. But as I mentioned earlier, I realized that I was a better coach and a better speaker than I was a drummer. Even though I had been playing drums for 20 years, put my blood, sweat and tears into it. What I'm doing now is actually what I always really wanted to do in my heart. And it was the natural God-given talent that God gave me. Um, I became a good drummer through skill and through lots and lots and lots of practice, but it wasn't my natural talent. What I do now is something that obviously I cultivate as a, as a skill and I practice it every day, um, but I had a talent for it that I can't really take credit for. I think that's a very important distinction between the natural skill that you have, sorry, the built up skill that you have 
and the natural talent you're born with. I think that's actually something very resonant with me. Reason being is because, you know, I, like you, I was in the uh, entertainment industry. I was specifically in the film industry and I found a direction in podcast production because I could take my cinematic experience of audio production, bring it into this. And there was kind of a natural talent for that as opposed to the built up skill of learning audio production specifically for, you know, actors on film sets, which I think the skill to build up there is your tolerance for bullshit, <laughs> you know, or my natural skill is my, <laughs> I'm sure all of the listeners right now who are in the entertainment world are like, yes, Chaz, say it louder for the people in the back. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, I mean, you and I can both attest. There's a ton of uh, not unnecessary bullshit that goes on in the film industry, you know, in, in the entertainment industry in general. Which makes me wonder, for you, you know, was there ever a, a rock bottom moment that helped you snap out of wanting to do music? Or was it kind of a, a prolonged thing that was going on, like a certain pattern that you picked up with on over time? It was definitely a certain pattern that I picked up over time. Um, you know, the first time I ever saw cocaine, I was in sixth grade. And it was because I was in a band. I was 12 and I was in a band with 15-year-olds. And those 15-year-olds were hanging out on the Sunset Strip with guys who were who were 25 30 40 and i was at the roxy one night and you know somebody whipped out a bunch of cocaine so that was my first exposure that the la music scene is kind of a crapshoot um, in terms of what you're going to get and then you know over time i saw the different personalities i saw the mental health issues i saw the lifestyle i saw a bunch of people trying to realize some dream that was never going to happen and they were just too stubborn to make a change um and they ended up being resentful and just working at guitar center and trying to be like a famous you know musician on the side i just just saw a lot of things that didn't line up with my future vision and the thing for me was that i had a vision of a life that didn't include only drumming. I had a vision for a life that included writing books, getting married, having a family, having hobbies, spending time with, you know, people that I love and care about, um, dabbling in different interests that I've always had. So what I saw, first of all, was that the lifestyle was not going to be conducive to having a, a multidisciplinary life. It, it was, it would have to be a one track mind, tunnel vision, drumming or nothing. Um, and then I also saw that, you know, everybody in the entertainment business is just messed up, you know, and there's no nice way to say that, but like I had internships at CBS and Conan O'Brien and record labels. And, you know, I had jobs working for different entertainment industry professionals. And it was like, every person here is so unhappy and they're so stressed out and they have no work-life balance. And, you know, they never stop to ask themselves if, should I really be talking to somebody this way? Is the language I'm using appropriate? Is, is this behavior that I'm exhibiting an appropriate way to act? And because it's Hollywood, it's just seen as acceptable. And, uh, and I really didn't like that. And now I work with a lot of clients. I have a lot of clients who are in the entertainment business now, usually young people just graduated college trying to break in, you know, and 
I totally get it because I was in their shoes, but every one of them, you know, our, our process together is unlearning all of the crap that they're being told about how they're supposed to behave and earning their stripes and climbing the ladder and staying at the office till 9.30 PM, cleaning water bottles out of some executives, you know, underneath his desk and then going to a dinner, you know, where you bring cupcakes and then you sit in the corner for two hours, like all of that stuff, like all that entertainment industry bullshit that people are supposed to go through, you know? And by the way, I never tell people to leave the entertainment industry. Uh, Cause it's not my job to tell them to leave. If they have a dream, it's my job to, to tell them to pursue it, but it's my job to put that dream into perspective and have them open their eyes. I think it's very wise when you simply tell someone how to do something, they'll only do it more because the first thing they come up with is, you know, what do you know in their mind, you know, but as, as you've been talking, you know, one, one question that has been kind of echoing in my cranium a bit has been, you know, what the average person would say. I think anybody hearing this would say, oh, well, it's all about the, the breed of person you are, right? But is it even about, do you, is there even such a thing as a breed of person? Or is everyone just warped into the unnatural there where they're, you know, they get so fixated on an idea that they absolutely force themselves to be something they're not, a.k.a. the breed that people think they naturally are? That's such a fascinating question. Um, I don't know if anybody in all the podcasts I've done and everything, I don't know if anybody has ever asked me, you know, do you think it's a breed of person issue or do you think it's a distorted perception and, you know, the, the way that you characterized it? It's, it's very interesting. Um, so I think that on the one hand, there are certain personality types. Um, you know, if if you look at something called the big five in psychology, there are, you know, there are five major indicators of our personality, conscientiousness, agreeableness, neuroticism, et cetera, et cetera, that indicate a lot about what breed of person you are. You know, some people are more aggressive, some people are more gentle, some people are more anxious, some people are more aloof, so forth and so on. And that that breed of person uh, generally over the course of your life will ring true. However, the breed of person that you are gets completely warped by one thing and one thing only, which is what you do every single day. Whatever you do every single day is what you become extraordinarily good at. So if you're negative every day and complaining every day, you will become the world's best negative complainer. If you are around people all day who are talking poorly, they have a poor outlook on life, they talk poorly to themselves, they talk poorly to you, that's going to rub off on you. You're going to start practicing that. You're going to become really good at that. On the other hand, if you have productive habits, such as exercising, eating well, meditating, working on yourself, working with a professional, and you put in that little bit of work every single day, that is also going to accentuate the breed of person you are. The problem we run into occurs when the breed of person we are is at odds with the things that we're practicing every day, right? The breed of person we are is antithetical to the habits we are engaging in every day. So let me give you an example. Um, take a young girl who's 22, she just graduated college, she is just 
generally her general disposition is she's gentle, she's soft, she's intelligent, she's a little bit nerdy, um, and she's really easy to get along with. Okay. She wants to be in the entertainment industry. You take that person with that personality type and you shove her in an environment where everyone is aggressive, they're competitive, they're rude, they have super high expectations, right? They thrive in pressure, right? Is that breed of person going to thrive in that type of environment? Well, what's going to happen is she's going to be in that environment and she's going to think in order to compete here, right? In order to rise to the top here, I have to exhibit all of these character traits. But those character traits are completely antithetical to who she is as a person, right? So now she's practicing something every day that is totally warping and distorting who she is naturally as a person. So when I start working with people and they're really unhappy with their job, the first thing we do is I don't I don't need to know about your job. I don't need to know about your boss. I don't need to know anything about that. That comes later on. First, I need to know what type of person you are. Is the type of person that you are going to thrive in this environment? And are you behaving in ways that are conducive to your own success based on your personality breed? based on your personality type. Does, does that make sense? It does. And that that is a very interesting, I think that is a very fascinating answer that can be unpacked in a lot of different ways. Hey folks, we're going to take a quick break. And before we do that, I want to emphasize the fact that because of this pandemic, Mr. Thrive Media realized that we need to do a better job at supporting small business wherever we can. So enjoy. Hey Thrivers, do you hear a certain difference in quality? That's because this podcast quality is made possible by Squadcast. Virtual recordings have become easier than ever with Squadcast Studio Quality SaaS Remote Recording Platform. This cloud-based technology secures your files and minimizes post-production for all podcast producers. And I should know because I am one. Heighten the experience of your podcast by clicking the link in the show notes below. This podcast is a Mr. Thrive Media production. Mr. Thrive Media builds communities through its content marketing and networking events. During this pandemic, our dedicated team commits to the value of connection by producing podcast content while extending a helping hand towards artists and entertainment professionals. Mr. Thrive Media puts its values first by supporting small businesses and empowering emerging artists. For more information, visit www.mrthrive.com. That's mrthrive.com. As you were talking, I couldn't help but think to myself, you illustrated a hypothetical, but I think that that came from a very real place. And I'm wondering if you can speak on some of the experiences that you had, maybe the preconceived notions of who you were as a person before, and what were some of the experiences that, you know, put in that repetitive experience that you just kind of described of that negative environment that kind of turn the world upside down. I know you kind of have drawn some up originally, but you know, I think there's a lot more there. I feel like the hypothetical is a lot more real to you than it is a hypothetical, you know? Well, that hypothetical is drawn from my experience uh, working with one of my clients. You know, I just obviously can't mention her name, <laughs> but I had, I've had a lot of real world experiences um, in, in this business where the type of person that I am or the type of person that I want to be was at odds with 
the work environment that I was in, which is why I said that, you know, I had to get real with myself about who am I, where do I want to go, you know, and, and, and what is the lifestyle that I want to have? And look, Chaz, you know, the ultimate challenge of every young person's life, the ultimate conquest of every young person's life is bridging the gap between who we are and who we want to be. Bridging the gap between where we are now and where we want to be. There is a huge bridge there. There's a huge gap there for every person in their 20s, sometimes for people in their 30s. You know, usually people figure that out by the time that they're 40, 50 or whatever, if they're, if they're lucky. Um, but, you know, I realized that if I stayed in this industry, for me, for my lifestyle, for my future, then that bridge between who I am and who I want to be, I was going to be building that bridge out of potato chips and it was going to crumble, you know? So now I'm in a line of work where I've lessened that gap. I've lessened that bridge because the work that I do now is conducive to who I want to be and where I want to be. I think that's a very powerful way of taking control of your life, positioning yourself and your profession and the regular environment that you put yourself in, in a place to empower others and bring positivity into your, your life, the reward of seeing people that you work with grow. Uh, that's, I mean, it sounds like a really incredible experience. What are some of the amazing transformations that you've been able to manifest because of your decision? So in my own life, I've seen a lot of amazing transformations. I mean, look, I, we, we didn't talk much about kind of my, my backstory, but when I was 19, I was diagnosed with an incurable disease of the stomach and it caused me to be unable to eat. Um, and I wasn't able to eat for several months and I started dropping weight really rapidly. And as a result of dropping so much weight and the emotional trauma of this experience, I became severely anorexic and I started starving myself on purpose. As a result of being severely anorexic, I fell into a very deep depression. Um, the other side of depression is anxiety. So I started having panic attacks. You know, then the first time I got into a serious relationship, I realized that I had serious emotional issues in the love department. I had attachment issues. I had codependency. I had fear of abandonment, you know, and I had no money, no hope, uh, no clarity. How old were you? I, I loved playing drums. I would, you know, this is all between the ages of like 19 and 23. Wow. 24, you know, and, and I basically just had no direction and I was depressed and anorexic and anxious and my body was failing and I had no real friends. My friends were freaked out. So they stopped being my friends and, um, I was completely lost and I've transformed from that to being, thank God, successful in my career. I'm still building it, of course, but very proud of what I've accomplished, helping other people. I'm in incredible physical shape. I don't have an ounce of body dysmorphia anymore the way that I used to. You know, I have great relationships with women. I know, you know, I've, I've become a dating coach. You know, that's a lot of the work that I do is in dating now. So I obviously was able to figure that out. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have made these transformations not because I figured out rocket science or God came down and handed me a tablet. I made these transformations because of the little things that I did every day, you know, the, the, the little habits and faith and belief in myself 
and trying to do something for other people to take myself out of the center of my universe. One of the reasons that I was so depressed, and and this was one of the problems with being a drummer for me, was that I was constantly thinking about me, my problems, my money, my future, my career. Am I going to be the drummer that I want? Am I going to be in a magazine? You know, is it going to be satisfactory to me? Are people going to think I'm cool? Uh, me, me, me all the time. And I mean, that is, that is, of course, the biggest recipe for depression, sadness, confusion, resentment, because who do you know who can live up to that standard? You know, like very, very, you have to have an incredible constitution to be able to be me, me, me all the time and not crumble. Um, but, you know, I made the transition to let me take myself out of the center of my universe and see what I can do for other people. How can I take my gift, my experiences, my talent, and help other people? And so now my life's purpose wasn't to help me. My life's purpose wasn't to put myself on some kind of a pedestal. My life's purpose was to help other people. And I mean, the science has shown 100 years, year after year, that when you do things for other people, and when you feel that your life's purpose is connected to something higher than yourself, you are happier. So that was, uh, that was but one of the many realizations I had in this journey of overcoming all of these problems that, you know, young people should never have to deal with. Well, I just got to commend you for, you know, attacking these issues that as you put, as you put it very beautifully, you know, issues that young people should not have to put up with. You know, I just want to really, you know, tip my hat to you and say that you're really doing a justice. Thank you. And I think that it's really relevant to this Thank podcast, you, not just because you're an artist, not just because you're a speaker, but because so often we've spoken about mental health and people who are literally during that interview in the thick of fighting their depression, their anxiety, their mental illness, fill in the blank here of issues, you know, and how their art is a way of ventilation. However, it's not the complete answer, of course, right? So my thought is, you know, as you're talking about this, the one motif I've been picking up on about your process and what you inculcate into people is consistency. Is that correct? Is that accurate? That consistency really is key? Or is there another element to this that I'm missing? Well, there's there are many, many elements. You know, you can't simplify it down to just one thing or one word or one practice. But the first element is to figure out, you know, the first element is, is awareness. If I had to boil it down. After awareness is action, right? You could be aware of your problems and sit on your ass for 10 years and know exactly what the problems are and not take any action to change it. Once you're in that action zone, the answer is consistency, 100%. The answer is showing up and doing what you know you need to do over and over again, you know, until you get it right. And that's not rocket science. That's pure discipline. That's just discipline. When I have a long day, sometimes I'll go to the gym at 10 p.m. My mom and my sister, 
tell me I'm crazy. Why would you go to the gym so late? You know, it's not because that one workout is going to change my life. It's because as soon as I slip, as soon as I tell myself tonight, I'm tired tonight. I don't feel like it, you know, whatever I can do it tomorrow. I'll make up for it later. That is a break in the chain of my consistency. And that's a break in my discipline. And that is a very, very slippery slope. I think that's very well said. A break in your discipline leads to a slippery slope of, you know, just losing the ability to really progress and move forward. That is something that, you know, it can be in regards to, as you said, physical health. It can be in regards to mental health. Like, let's say meditation is your outlet or writing, which is something I'm trying to get back into is writing a lot more. And I need to be consistent about that. Same way that I would exercise on a regular basis uh, in my morning boot camps, you know, this morning, my best friend, uh, Josh and I, we actually take the same virtual boot clap boot, boot camp class. And, uh, we started the session. He wasn't there. And then I called him. We, we finally got on the phone around like 11 AM and he just said, yeah, you know, my, my body really needed a rest. My body, my body really needed the rest. And I was tired. And I said to him, you know, I, Part of me was kind of disappointed in him. A part of me was like, oh, dude, come on, man. We signed up for this class together. You got to do it with me. But that's making it about me. So I said to him, you know, listen, you got to do what you got to do. I, I understand, um, you know, I, I guess do what makes you feel best. But if it were me, I would have still gone because as we're both going to Hawaii together, I said to him, our goal is to get the sexiest beach bods out there, right? Can't do that if you break yeah. your discipline. I didn't say it that well, as well as I said it, but, you know, that's the, that's what I was explaining to him was that we're trying to get our beach bods on, man. Come on, you know? Yeah. No, of yeah. course. And and look, you, I'm a big fan of taking rest days. You know, I, I, I take days where I don't do any work. I take days when I don't go to, go to the gym, right? But I make sure that those rest days are scheduled. I don't take those rest days or I try not to take those rest days when I wake up in the morning and say, I'm not motivated to go work out today, or I'm not motivated to do work today, or I'm not motivated to do my meditation today. If you're waiting around until you're motivated, or if you're waiting around until you feel like it, you're going to be waiting so, so long that you die of old age, you know? Nobody who like nobody is just magically motivated to do these difficult things that we know we need to do every day. It requires discipline. But it's really about making your higher desires conquer your base desires. So you have a higher desire to get in shape, you have a higher desire to decrease your anxiety, right? That has to conquer your base desire to sleep in. That has to conquer your base desire to eat Cheetos and watch you know, TV on the couch or whatever. So discipline is, is, is a battle of desires. Yes, you should take those rest days if you really need them, you know, but this whole thing of listening to your body, it can also be a slippery slope because, you know, is it, are are you listening to your body or are you being lazy? I've had days where I'm truly listening to my body and I've had days when I'm being fucking lazy excuse my language <laughs> no you, you can, know you can fucking and, cause all you want <laughs> and look even if you're being fucking lazy and that's what you need to do because you're depressed or you're having a really hard day or whatever fine do it but be honest with yourself yes acknowledge that that's what you're doing right because 
The slipperiest slope of them all is when we start lying to ourselves. When we start trying to paint a picture of ourselves, of what's going on that is false and inaccurate. At the end of the day, you have to go to bed with yourself at night and nobody else is going to know if you're lying, but you're going to know if you're lying. And you are, you are your biggest enemy or your best friend, you know, depending on how honest you are with yourself, the consistency of your actions and the quality of your choices. I think that's, uh, that's beautifully said. And what I'm relating to is a conversation that has not been recorded. The conversation I'm thinking of is during our pre-interview session, we were talking about, uh, you know, motivating factors and the difference between pain and suffering. And you know what? You, you, you use a certain verbiage that I'm going to attribute to the concept of suffering, which, as we know, pain is a part of life. Pain can be something as simple as stubbing your toe. Pain can be something as simple as getting your heart broken. Pain can be something as simple as... Uh, finding out you lost money in the stock market today, whatever it is, you know? Um, but then there's suffering and suffering, uh, is lying to yourself about what's really going on. The deeper issues, the deeper problems, the cycles that you fall yourself into and being motivated by those habits, thinking that that's either what you deserve or that's the only way to live. And someone like you, I imagine steps into these people, people's lives and helps them reconfigure that mentality to the point where they can take control back of their lives. And, you know, I had that personal transformation of, you know, understanding, uh, breaking out of the, the world of suffering, um, during this pandemic, my, my experience is that I, I, you know, I'm an angry soul and the way I, ventilated it. Well, I, I, the answer is I didn't ventilate it. I actually held it all in back in the day. Uh, as I say that like a year ago, uh, so not really back in the day, but just a year ago, you know, I would, I would bottle that up. I was not good at, um, expressing it in a productive way. And when I did, it did result in shouting, uh, cause I didn't have control of that. I didn't have control of my own emotions and thus I was suffering. Right. But uh, I learned how to shift that anger because what I learned is that it's okay to be angry, but how you re how how you reprogram that anger can be brought into something productive as opposed to destructive, and a, a lot of what you teach and a lot of what you enlighten people with covers that more. I know that a year ago, I I know I could have absolutely thrived off of the very wisdom and lessons that you taught. And I think that's why we're friends today. Like how like that instant connection that you and I created a couple weeks ago when we met at a, uh, a local Jewish community organization, you know, uh, Kevin, I'm fascinated by you, man. I'm completely infatuated with what you're doing in your work. There's a lot to untangle. If someone listening to this podcast right now wanted to get a hold of you, acquire your services, get enlightened by the high brand of enlightenment what is the best way to reach out to you thank you man thank you for for all of the really kind things you said um i feel the same way about you you're doing amazing work um the easiest way to contact me is on my website it's kevin nahai.com k-e-v-i-n-n-a-h-a-i.com 
also on my Instagram. It's just my name, Kevin Nahai. Um, and uh, if I can, I just want to say something about the pain and the anger that that you were talking about a moment ago. So, first of all, a word a word about anger. There are three. I always say that there are three phases to anger. Okay, phase one is the trigger. Phase two is the reaction, and phase three is the aftermath. We have no control over phase one, but we have complete control over phases two and three. So the trigger is something happened or some, somebody said something that pissed you off or that hurt you. Okay. Unfortunately, we don't have any control over that. Phase two is the reaction. How you react to that is completely within your control. You have the ability to put your phone in the other room. You have the ability to take a brief take a a deep breath and walk away. You have the ability to stop the conversation and revisit, right? Or you have the ability to react in a way that's really impulsive and does not end well. Phase three is the aftermath, which is how long do you let the trigger affect you, right? So the trigger is completely out of your control. You reacted in a way that was either clear, calm, and cool, or you reacted in a way that was angry and impulsive. But now, how long are you going to let it affect you? There are people who are still angry about a trigger that occurred 20 years ago, and they've just been drinking this poison of their own anger because they were unable to let it go. And that trigger of pain, whatever the pain is in our lives, is inevitable. But suffering is optional. We suffer when we see ourselves as a victim. We suffer when something occurs in our lives. And yes, it's okay to be mad about it. It's okay to be sad about it. It's okay to be hurt, right? But we suffer when a hurricane comes into our lives and tears it up like a city. And then five months or five years or 10 years later, we still have refused to clean up the wreckage because we think that the hurricane is going to come back and clean it up for us, right? Or we blame God or we blame the other person. You can blame, blame, blame all you want. But as long as you're stuck in that victim mentality that this happened to me and now it's someone else's job to clean up the mess in aisle six, you're going to be suffering because you have completely given away every ounce of power that you have. We're all going to experience pain, but we don't have to suffer. And the way that you choose not to suffer, the way that you turn your tragedy into a triumph is you take accountability and you say, regardless of the fact, regardless of whatever pain I'm experiencing, regardless of the fact that this happened, which is sad, and, and I'm hurt and, and I understand, you know, I, I, I'm sorry that that happened to you. I'm still going to turn this around. I have the ability to turn this tragedy into a triumph, right? Now you're no longer suffering because now you can put on your big boy pants and go and clean up that mess and rebuild the city of your life. And it doesn't matter that that hurricane destroyed it, right? That is real power. And when you're in that that position of power, when you have that leverage over your own life, that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what pain I experience because I can rebuild. You're never going to suffer like that. 
thank you for that wisdom. And I, that was even helpful for some personal matters that are currently going on in my life. And remind me that anytime I need a free life coaching session to bring you back on the podcast. (laughs) You got it, bro. (laughs) My pleasure. All the information regarding his contact information we displayed in the show notes of this episode. And finally, Kevin, and the question I ask everybody on this podcast, what will you be famous for? That's a great question. Um, I don't know that I'll be famous. Um, you know, when I was a drummer, I used to think I used to have a lot of delusions of grandeur and fame. Um, now I just really want to help people. And it's not that it's not even that I want to, it's that I, I feel that I have to, I feel it's my obligation. But if I were to be famous for something, I would want to be famous for making the lives of people in their 20s and 30s more intelligible to them and giving them the practical tools and solutions to avoid a lot of the pain that we are going through. People in their 20s and 30s are supposed to be in their pri- the prime of their lives. They're supposed to be setting themselves up to have very, very successful, happy lives. And instead, at least in the States, people in their 20s and 30s are the most depressed, most anxious, most heavily medicated cohort of people anywhere in the whole country out of 300 million people, you know, and it just doesn't make sense. And I want to raise a new generation, you know, the next generation of people who are in their 20s and 30s. I don't want them to go through the same depression and anxiety and suffering and poor life choices that I went through and that so many of my friends and colleagues and clients are going through right now. So I'm on a mission, man, you know, to to prevent that kind of pain. And as I said earlier, it's not rocket science. It's just awareness and taking the right actions. I love that this is your calling. It's noble, it's beautiful, and it's going to go and bring you places. And I wish you nothing but the best. Kevin DeHai, everyone, thank you so much for being a part of this show and being a, and joining us and bringing your wisdom to this to the forefront of this, of this podcast. And, uh, thanks again for being here, man. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much, brother. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. This podcast releases bi-weekly on Fridays. To attend one of our networking events, visit the registration link in the show notes or go to www.mrthrive.com. Would you like to be a guest on our show? Email chaz at mrthrive.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.